Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Thank you so much for asking. I do hope everybody out there is doing as fantastic as, as I am, mostly because we are airing a conversation that we had with one of our most favorite guests. This was a conversation that came from Crawl Space, and her name is Jody Voice Yellowfish. And Tim, why are we airing this for our missing audience? Well, this episode aired on Crawl Space back in October of 2020, and so that was a while ago. We never aired this on Missing. We're speaking about missing and murdered indigenous women, which is a topic that we're passionate about, so much so that we are being joined by Jody Voice Yellowfish at Obsessed Fest 2023 in Dallas, Texas in October, coming up very soon. So she's actually joining us for a panel and that's really the reason we wanted to air this here on Missing was to let you know about this panel and to let you know that you can still get tickets to Obsessed Fest at ObsessedNetwork.com. And you mentioned that Obsessed Fest is in Dallas this year, and that is the reason why we have Jody on this panel. She is the chair for the MMIW Texas as a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women organization. She's also the ambassador for the American Indian Heritage Day in Texas, Indian Citizens Against Racial Exploration. So her involvement in Dallas is really crucial, and we wanted to make sure that that was represented at Obsess Fest. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jody Voice Yellowfish. It's pretty wide-ranging, and again, hope to see you at Obsessed Fest in October. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Jody Voice Yellowfish. Thank you so much. Uh, we do know how busy you are. We know that you uh, have several things going on. And what we wanted to focus on specifically for this interview is your work in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, I guess, campaign, I guess, advocacy that you lead the charge on in uh, in Texas. Uh, how did how did this all start? And, and how did you decide to sort of formalize your, your organization? I've been aware of this crisis for I don't know, for forever, it feels like. In in our area in Dallas, you know, we're kind of, we're a relocation site, Dallas is. And so we have um, so many tribes represented in the North Texas area, but we're spread out. We're not in one, one small community. Like if you live on tribal land and live on a reservation or anything like that. We all have connections to our tribal homes all over the country. And, you know, we're just made aware of these things that are happening all the time. And one case that specifically stood out to me was um, Savannah Graywin. So I learned about that and it was, it was a horrible case. Kidnapped, murdered, her baby was cut from her womb. The baby survived, she didn't, she was found in the river. Um, this case just is stuck with me so bad. Like her age and she was, in, she was going to college, living with her boyfriend, starting their family. It just reminded me of so many people that I know and, you know, I wanted to do something and we had a, a small memorial, a small vigil here in our area. And I just seen the need for our community. They had so many questions of what, what can we do and how can we stay engaged and active and slowly but surely, you know, in the months following that, um, we ended up forming, forming our group because um, I'm actually a part of a larger organization, American Indian Heritage Day in Texas. And I've done different um, women's issues, awareness raising efforts for that group. And 
so now we have a permanent program within that organization that is just MMIW Texas, and that's the the group that I lead. Oh, that is that's fantastic and uh, really um, well done on on the work that that you've uh, started and seen through and been motivated by uh, and motivated others. Uh, this uh, this case that you just mentioned, uh, I think you said of Savannah Graywind. How how you said she was young? How old was she? And when did you first learn about this? And has there been any resolution to this case? Because it sounds uh, incredibly tragic. I can't remember the year. I should have this like, you know, in memory, but, um, I mean, I've, I've alluded to her case, like, I don't know how many times, you know, doing this work, um, because it is the case that stuck with me and really got me to do something. If you can, if you say, you know, you really do fully, you know, receive justice, you know, there are people in, in, in jail, people were caught, you know, nobody got away with doing this. They're not seeking justice per se anymore, but, um, there are people in jail. Her baby survived and is is thriving. You know, people check in, support her, her child, her family. And I'm I'm trying to think of the year. I want to say that was 2017 that that case happened. Oh, okay, so it was at least pretty recent. You're not talking about something that happened in the in the in the 90s or anything like that. No, it it is it's fairly recent. But I mean, we we have generations of people that have these stories in their family. They just didn't have the name. They didn't have MMIW yeah. to refer to as this is what happened to my my grandma, my my aunties, my you know siblings. You know we've been dealing we've been dealing with this type of violence since colonization happened, and you know in MMIW um, organizing circles, people refer to Pocahontas, which you know that's not her 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 name. You know they named her that, but people refer to Pocahontas and Sacagawea as the first MMIW cases and the first first um known cases of that so you know we're very familiar on many different levels of of this type of violence yeah i think that uh that's kind of what my uh reaction was when you said you think about 2017 and and it was recent um you know it's still going on like it's it's 2017 where where this case happened with savannah it we're talking 2020 right now it's still going on uh we spoke to uh carolyn smith morris yesterday who You've worked with through your cause through missing and murdered uh, indigenous women, and it seems like there's there's always a couple of steps forward and then a couple of steps back and and a couple of steps back and a couple of steps forward, uh, and this has been going on for generations and generations. What is it like, I guess, trying to tackle something like this from your perspective, your standpoint? How how I guess daunting is that? What was what was more daunting to me wasn't so much the, you know, the steps forward and step backs. You know, when I think of that, I think of, you know, legislative efforts and laws and things like that. Um, I think more of the daunting task for me was the actual, you know, having rapid response protocols in place to help families. Um, you know, because I I feel that's that's the work. Those are the feelings that stick with you when you. You, you know, you, when you lie down at night, you know, that, that information is what, you know, you're dreaming about <laughs> and you wake up to, and, you know, that's the stuff that, that when you're asleep and you do wake up, you're, you're checking your phone just to see if there's any updates on something. Um, you know, those are, those are the, the daunting tests to me. I feel like making sure there's a balance of being able to help these families and still take care of your own family in the process. And, you know, being being there for um, these MMI, MMIW families as much as possible. Is it a lot easier 
uh, being a, a member of your tribes to uh, interact with uh, with with the victims and their families? At times, I feel I feel like that with um, with our group specifically. You know, once we kind of announced to to our community and you know our area, our state that we were an actual group and that that was our goal to be there for families. The first family that reached out to us specifically reached out because they wanted um, their people to help them in this, in this situation, in this moment, um, because they felt ignored. Um, you know, they were trying to go to law enforcement. They were trying to go to media and try to get attention raised around this, around their situation and they weren't getting anywhere. And, they literally, you know, the the grandmother in that case literally just said, I just needed my people to come and help me. And, you know, I, I really didn't know what to do. We hit the ground running, like literally with this case. We didn't have any kind of protocol, any kind of, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to offer. Um, you know, we, we just, we hit the ground running and I was literally going by my gut, like, what should I do? What should I help them with? And that's what I was told, you know, once I was there, it's like, I just wanted my people to help me. So I, I don't know if that necessarily makes it easier um, per se, but, you know, it de- definitely makes it that much more important to me, like, you know, personally. And uh, how important is uh, social media to, uh, to what you do? Um, it, it's extremely important. When you think about, you know, disseminating information, um, getting these flyers out, it's, it's extremely important, but it's also, it's also risky. And using so much social media, um, you know, our, our tribal, tribal people in the States, they tend to be quick to share the information. And sometimes, and this is one of the things that when we talk about like having a rapid response protocol is helping family members understand that getting the information out is extremely important, but also knowing what information to share is important. You know, some families, they don't understand in that moment, because you are in a crisis situation where you're not thinking straight, put posts up on social media, um, put flyers up that have personal emails or personal phone numbers. And, you know, within the realm of organizing around MMIW, you know, we have predators that exploit these, exploit these people. You know, we've dealt with plenty of cases where, you know, there, these numbers are out there and people start uh, texting and emailing or, or calling and saying, you know, we have, we have so-and-so you know, give us, give us this money. And that happens more often than not, I would say. So, I mean, it's, it's extremely important to get the word out about somebody missing, but it's also extremely important and sometimes not always there, the, the education surrounding how to do it properly. I just want to be clear. You said that when you put out the information uh, regarding a missing person, you sometimes will receive information back that is like a ransom that is fake yes and how far does how far does that go because you have to follow up on that right yeah so i mean it just it really depends like we try to one of the things that um you know our, our group specifically and many groups if not all groups that help these families you try to try to fill in that gap you try to stand stand in there and make sure help with um media, make sure law enforcement, things like that. Um, So one thing that we try to do is make sure families aren't putting that information out, that they are getting the proper response from law law enforcement um, and try to to, try to really understand the situation to see if there's more to do before you start blasting on social media about 
this person isn't with us. When there is law enforcement involved in the case, which is what we want so that there's a detective and a case number and things can be kept track of, when there is that, that situation and you do start to receive any kind of text back and emails about, you know, like this possible ransom type situation, um, then it can be checked out through the, the agencies involved. Okay. And, and when you say law enforcement, do you mean a um, cooperation between federal law enforcement and tribal law enforcement? Um, that really, that really just depends on the situation because um, there are actually more tribal citizens living in urban areas like where we're located in Dallas than on tribal land. So, you know, it really is, it really is a matter of the individual situation. Um, we're supporting some efforts in uh, Mississippi right now where they could not get tribal law enforcement to help. Community did their own searches and came came upon the pot, the body of somebody they were they were searching for. So they had no help whatsoever. And then immediately, once a body is found, then it's the FBI is involved. Um, so there's this the, when it comes to jurisdiction and who's in charge and resources and time. Um, it, it, it it's a really messy situation trying to find out who is going to help. Yeah, that sounds exasperating. These crimes happen at a rate that's like astronomically higher than a white person. These, 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 uh, the the murders, the missing, the uh, sexual assaults, like they happen at a much higher rate. Uh, I, the the red tape that's involved with even starting the investigation must be completely exasperating for you. Uh, yeah, learn, learning about these cases. I mean, it it is. It's traumatic just to understand the the scope of what you're dealing with before you're even if you're not directly involved in one specific case because you know if you're if you're educating yourself on trying to understand jurisdiction I mean it's it's so it, it it's it's exhausting um, understanding the red tape about how who who can prosecute um, basically if you're not a tribal citizen you go a tribal tribal land, you can get away with murder, literally, um, because tribal law enforcement cannot, cannot arrest you or prosecute you, anything like that. And do you think that's why um, a lot of people are targeted? Yes, yes. I mean, there are, you could literally be like serial level rapist murderer and know that understanding the timing of where you have to drive to, to tribal land and the time to get back and the small amount of tribal law enforcement that it would take to find somebody, you're long gone. You know, you can come and do this on tribal land and then literally know that once you get back to the city, you're, you're pretty, you're, you're home free, basically. Is there any sort of bill or, or legislation that can be passed that, that, that this, you know, something like murder or sexual assault couldn't that be an exception to this? Or I mean, things can change, right? Um, there have been plenty of, of um, attempts at trying, you know, with when it comes to like the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act, there is always um, things put in that would give tribes more power. And it's always, there's always somewhere, um, somewhere in Congress that they feel that it would be too biased if tribal law enforcement and tribal government was able to um, arrest and charge and prosecute and everything, um, somebody that's not a tribal citizen. So it's like if, you know, Congress can basically side with, they're not going to get a free, a free shake at this. 
So some, some higher up government and law enforcement needs to handle this. But yet when that happens, there's not the resource or the time to go out of your way from the FBI to go to a small reservation or tribal land to do the job properly. I'm very confused at the bias thing because, and I'm sure you're very confused at that as well, because how do you even like predetermine bias if like ultimately it's justice that people are looking for? Yeah, no, I mean, the confusion is there. The confusion has been there. You know, it's, you know, this feels like you're going in circles when you talk about jurisdiction and how, you know, we can be, that whole process can be viewed biased or unfair towards one person when it does deal with sexual assault or murder. Um, you know, you're, you're asking the questions we've been asking for generations, basically. How many uh, family members or direct victims do you work with or, or family of victims uh, do you work with? Is, is it a lot of one-on-ones? With us specifically, we've only had just a handful of cases that we've actually helped with um, locally, you know, that we were able to be physically with, with the family. Um, and those were fairly quick turnarounds. Um, we've shown our support. We have a pretty wide network of other organizations that we work with that are MMIW focused different chapters and uh, are different groups, I should say, um, throughout Oklahoma. And we are starting to try to work with different people in, in the Southwest. And those, that, that connection is offering resources, um, offering any kind of information, offering, um, funding to help people. Um, so you know, I, doing this work, I tend to tell people that, um, you know, some people, you know, they'll, they'll be down and classified as missing, but not all missing cases end up in, in, in murder. Um, more often than not, um, uh, people make it home. And that's just the start of their journey, trying to receive justice somehow from something they were actually running from, or getting um, resources to help them heal from something, or just just move forward in life and um those resources aren't always available so this network of, of groups that's what what happens you know we're literally on the phone trying to help with funds or trying to find resources in an area and um that's like the one-on-one -on -one work that we have is one organizer to another one advocate to another or putting somebody in contact with another another person somewhere and you started this with your sister uh snowy voice and aside from the one-on-one -on -one work that you just spoke about, you also focus on education and community building. Uh, how important is the education part when you're like digging into the or exploring the history of of Native Americans and and Indigenous women? So the the um, education and the awareness raising, you know, they, they go hand in hand and you can't really do um, awareness or advocacy work if you don't understand, you know, the depth of the problem that you're dealing with and how, um, you know, even within, um, within our organization, um, once we actually started and actually had some members and we started um, discussing the space that we wanted to create and how we wanted to help people, um, you know, we had to share how much you know our capacity what we could handle our our health and well-being as well so that we could be there fully for people and that that goes back to that education on um generational trauma and how 
far back this violence goes within our within our people. So, you know, there, there, there definitely comes this education exhaustion to somebody that's, you know, we talk about this contemporary issue, but if you don't understand the, the historical aspect of it all, it's really hard to grasp the full, the full scope of it all. So we do a lot of um, education on understanding colonial gender-based violence. We have to do some education on understanding jurisdiction and resources and money and how tribes ha get, have resources and how we don't have as many resources here in like bigger cities. And, you know, we have to have all those conversations to have people understand, understand the crisis. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And uh, tell us about American Indian Heritage Day in Texas. Um, yes, yeah, so American Indian Heritage Day in Texas is a nonprofit that um, started, this is our eighth year. We're actually, this Friday is the actual state holiday. A group of, um, where a couple of elders, um, Larry and Peggy Larney, um, had this idea to start this, to have a state holiday. And that came, that grew out of conversations surrounding Columbus Day, which happens in October, and conversations around educating um, Native students on the atrocities that came after Columbus and why he is celebrated in the way he is. And um, so from that, those conversations, those were some online conversations. And from that, um, you know, these, these elders in our community wanted to figure out how we could educate. And we learned that if you have a state holiday in the state of Texas, it's supposed to be acknowledged and educated upon in public schools. So our goal was to get a honest kind of um, contemporary take on celebrating history and celebrating contributions to society, you know, in our, in our city, in our state. And it passed, it went through, um, went through uh, the house and went to the Capitol and everything. And it passed really quickly. We weren't even aware that it actually passed because we were thinking this is going to be, <laughs> be more of a fight to get done, but it passed immediately. And ever since then, um, this Friday is our actual eighth holiday since we got it started. Um, and we'll, we have um, a huge uh, celebration uh, every last weekend of September. And this year we can't do it in person. We're doing a digital celebration we ha we're having. I'm actually hosting and moderating a panel over MMIW Saturday um, as a part of this um, celebration. But, you know, from that, that organization, you know, they have the goal of advocacy and education. So that is what we do. We try to have um, events and things for not only our community, but for non-Native folks in our area so they can learn about us and learn how to be be allies and be a part of our community in a respectful way. Well, that is awesome. Uh, congratulations on that and getting it passed so quickly and uh, keeping up uh, eight years into it. Um, I'll have you know that I am not a supporter of Christopher Columbus. I, I, I am 
uh, baffled at how he's been so iconicized in American history. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's always been about Christopher Columbus? And, and I mean, I, I know even, uh, you know, my niece, she's she's young. And she when she was in uh, grade school, when she was first learning about history, it's always been, you know, Christopher Columbus and, you know, the, that he, he was he discovered America. And uh, the 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 native culture was always sort of a side note, kind of kind of under the carpet type, uh, you know, sweeping under the carpet. Why do you think that is? I think that that kind of deals with needing to have a figure, especially especially a male figure, be celebrated. There's a need to have a certain person and time and place referred to as this is the beginning. This is the start. This is the person that did this. Um, and it's just easier to, if everybody's on the same page, it's easier to keep it going. You know, it came with this this brand new, this new world, this discovery, this very positive um notion of why he was here which has never been you know the truth um that's been you know shared and celebrated it's it's never been that what 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 we're all taught in public school basically you know it's it's easier to dismiss that having the conversation of you know it wasn't a discovery it was an encounter because people were already here you know there was already a thriving culture if you you celebrate just that discovery and keep it at that you you have you're 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 almost forced to dismiss the violence that came with that encounter to to gain to gain this land and to grow and even though some people that came to this to to this new world had a better life that doesn't mean everybody involved had a better life and i think that's why it's so easy for educators and government to celebrate it still to this day yeah great points i think the messy conversations are okay because what we've been told isn't really the truth and uh, that's kind of offensive actually when you think about it yeah yeah i've always i've um ever since we did the you know american indian heritage day i've always talked about having an honest history and a truthful history and we deserve to have that and i don't mean just native people you know, I, I mean that for everyone involved, if you if you attend any kind of education in your life, which is basically everyone in this country, you're exposed to some kind of education. And why do you have to be played as you wouldn't understand or, you know, you know, downplay this because it, it is ugly and it is messy. I never I never understood that. And um, I still it still kind of baffles me when when I say an honest history and that it's not just mine. It's not just yeah. our history. No, it's a it's a great point. Uh, no one likes to be uh, lied to, and uh, kids, you know, if if the reason is oh kids can't handle it, I think that's a bunch of bullshit. You know, maybe maybe give it a couple of years and and then and then do it because kids are smart; they'll get it. Yeah, I mean, and and the history. I mean, as messy and ugly as as it is, it's pretty simple. You know, somebody wanted something that somebody had and the way to take it was violently. That's basically what you would need to say <laughs> to get the point across to understand understand that. And kids get that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, it's a restructuring of the educational system, I think, that needs to happen. And it's so easy to say, I know, I'm sure there's a bunch of people out there who are shaking their heads and saying that, you know, this is like fairy tale land. But, you know, like you said, Tim, if it, it kids get it, Maybe not at a certain age. Maybe you shouldn't say something at a certain age that is messy and violent, and but is the reality. So maybe that comes in a little later on. So then you, but don't lie. Don't don't give them some 
some frosted coded version of history. It's endlessly frustrating when you look at where, how the system is uh, in place and and the information that is delivered to such young ears because it, it takes twice as long to unravel that into the truth later on. And there is nothing wrong with saying it was messy and violent and, I mean, atrocious, like, like a genocide of a people. And we can't say to ourselves that we were capable of doing something that we have vilified other nations of doing, and which we've done. And and that's uh, I think the only way to have some sort of like solid change is to accept that and say, well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me. It wasn't my father. It wasn't his father. It could have been his father. And and that, you know, that is something that I can't change back then. But maybe we can change moving forward. I think a lot of that has has to do with pride as well. We actually deal with that a lot with um, American Indian Heritage Day and also MMIW work. We deal with when we do this education and it is a truthful history that um, people are moved and they do understand, you know, you, you have to confront the fact that, you know, everything you've learned is a part of a system and that system is working that, you know, we talk about changing the system and, you know, the system is broken. It's not broken. It's working the way it is. And that's why you are only aware of certain aspects of history. But when we do our outreach and our education, we, we, we have to, we're confronted a lot by a lot of guilt. You know, people, you know, people are always like, you know, my, my, my ancestors did this, but, you know, I, that's not what we, we don't need you to feel bad. We don't need you to, to feel responsible for something that you had nothing to do, but you are responsible with understanding it and accepting your privilege about it and understanding how to be an ally and understanding how to support work that is still trying to come out from under that violence that maybe your ancestors were a part of. And that's, that's the biggest, that's the biggest goal of education and raising awareness is that understanding because if we can get everybody on that page, then maybe we can change laws about jurisdiction and who we can prosecute and resources and things like that. Like that's, that's the goal of the education that we do. Yeah, it's just easier to to not vilify white people. So let's just keep going that way. <laughs> you know, I because we straight up have people or be like, you know, they're, you know, white people come up and they're like, you know, I don't know if, you know, it's like, no, we don't, we can't say specifically your ancestors did this or that. I mean, I'm sure to an extent we can, but there there has to come a time where you can't, you you can't accept that as that's who you are. You're going to have to step outside of, of that, step outside of your comfort zone and be like, you know, that's not me. I acknowledge the, the privilege, but that's not me. And you can be different. And is there, uh, is there anything that people can do uh, to help your cause to contribute to uh, MMIW right there? You know, any, anything that has to do with like legislation or, or writing their, their congressperson? You know, when people ask me about what we can do, people, um, of course, they always, you know, they want to donate, but it's easier to, and, and, you know, I get asked, um, you know, people find our, our, our page or find me online and people will ask about that, but I see that they're not in my area. And I tell people that I'm sure there's somebody that's doing this work near you in your city, you know, much closer that needs funding. And when I say funding too, I don't mean huge, huge donations because some of these people that do this work are just individuals, 
that are doing their, their, their best to help their small community in this large city. So that's my, that's my first, my first, um, you know, piece of advice is, you know, you have to find that person that's doing it near you. Because if you're, you can find that person in your city, then as a resident of a city, you can talk to your city council, you can talk to your mayor, you can talk to and go up the ladder to make changes on with law and law enforcement or um, legislation. You know, there's a huge process to all this. And, you know, most times when you, you want bills passed, you, you have to have the backing, you have to have the info, you have to have the, you have to show a need, you have to prove the need um, on paper, basically. So there's a lot to do. Um, that would be that, that that would be the two biggest things though is to find the, the the circles that are organizing around this this crisis in your area and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program and uh as we've been having this uh, interview here I was looking up the information on Savannah Graywind and uh if anybody does not know about this case it is Heart-wrenching is, is not a strong enough word for this. Uh, this was, I guess, a, a, a crude C-section that went wrong, allegedly. Uh, but the, the, the picture of, of her boyfriend in the court crying is just, I mean, that's just, it's heartbreaking. It's horrible. So if, if anybody is um, curious about this, definitely look into this. It's, it's very, very, um, very tragic. So I could see how this case uh, grabbed you. Once, once you learned about it, I mean, because if if you if you're you're doing this work, you just knew at first that she was missing, and then it's slowly it just layer by layer. It's like it can't get any worse, and it does just step by step. It just would get worse and worse. And you know, I I don't think that this is a very uncommon um, occurrence either. I I think there's probably dozens and dozens of similar stories. Uh, when we were talking to Carolyn yesterday she had written that article in cultural survival about the epidemic that is missing and murdered indigenous women. And she had mentioned these man camps, uh, which I had no idea still existed. If, if this was 1955, I would say, Oh, that makes sense that you have these transient workers who are doing mining and, uh, you know, living on a, a on a, their wild whims. Um, what's your feelings on the, the these man camps? You have to understand um, the depth of, you know, what energy extraction is and what that means to, you know, with Native people in general in this country, you know, with our connections, the earth is sacred, you know, we have ceremony, we have language, we have things just just for our respect of, of, of the land. And what energy extraction does is basically comes and rapes the land. So, you know, and, you know, within our cultures, we have this very um, correlation between how women are sacred and the land is sacred. Um, so the more that happens to our land, violence happens to our women. Um, people see this, this connection strong since, you know, the beginning of time. And these, what these man camps are, are basically energy corporations coming as close to possible to tribal land um, I, mean, I mean, literally as possible, like close as possible. Like people can be on tribal land and ha take a selfie and there are, you can see the, the trailers, just all these, these tons of little white rectangles behind them that are gonna house workers. This is our reality, you know, like it's right outside of tribal land. All of these single men come, come and to, to work on these, 
to, to do this energy extraction. And with them, they bring alcohol, drugs, um, and you know, there are horror stories about what happened to women. And I mean, there are horror stories about children, um, toddlers, young boys being passed around in these man camps to sexually satisfy these workers. I mean, literal stories about toddlers and children. And I mean, that's, that's our existence. That's our reality that people do not know about. To stop this, you literally would have to stop an energy corporation, which is one of the most daunting tasks I can even imagine. You know, we've had, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline and Dakota Access pipeline, and we've seen how these fights played out literally with the world watching, and they're still happening. Even with those fights, energy extraction is still happening. Oil is still being taken from the earth, which means there are still these man camps and still the problems that they, they bring in. So, I mean, <laughs> how I feel about it, you know, it's heartbreaking and, you know, exhausting and angering. And, you know, how do we, how do we stop it? You know, we, we don't know how to stop it. How do you respond to leadership saying that all of the work that the energy companies are doing well they're just putting you know they're they're putting american citizens to work these are jobs you want to take jobs away from people what is your response to that it doesn't take very long to put um to put pipelines in these jobs do not last and once they are once they are put in the ground they they average less than 20 jobs you know they can have man camps full of hundreds of people but they're not there that long but while they're there you know they raise hell and they tear apart tribal communities and for what, for a few, for a few, um, literally a, a handful of jobs throughout the country, you know, and there's, there's such a great risk, not only to our communities, you know, in a physical, tangible sense, but also to the land. I mean, these, pi these pipelines don't just affect us. Just because they're, they're near tribal land doesn't mean that when they leak that the water I'm drinking on tribal land is different than the water you're going to drink next to it. So, you know, the entire, the entire thought process of, utilizing pipelines that go all the way across the country is just ridiculous basically. Oh, you're 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 100% accurate. There's several different ways that uh this could get done and it does not have to do with uh throwing pipelines in the ground. Uh it's dangerous on many levels and not mentioning the uh human level of these man camps and the violence that happens when uh when when things get out of hand there. Um it's something that's never talked about. Uh, I don't know about Tim, but I had never heard about this until I read that article that was written in uh, Cultural Survival. It's um, I've heard about obviously I've heard about the uh, you know pipelines and and uh, the the native lands, and I never heard about these man camps. And again, like I don't know why it's better to stay in the past as, as citizens here is like a culture here. You know, we can't seem to get out of our own way with, uh, uh, you know, like, again, that's, that felt like something that happens and it happened in like the thirties and forties and fifties. Like, why aren't we in, um, 2020, uh, with, with other alternatives. And, and if you can't, if, if you're, if you're talking about jobs that aren't very significant in the first place, why can't you train these people to do something different? You know, why can't you put money into that? So uh, it, it's just, it's very frustrating on this end. I can't imagine what it's like for, for you and your fight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's extremely frustrating. And to, to see that, that, our, that our government is okay with the amount of energy extraction and oil extra extraction that is happening, 
um, that they're okay with this, knowing that they're setting our tribal governments up for failure, keeping, you know, our power at the, the very minimal level of what we do have, you know, knowing that we can't arrest and we can't prosecute and allowing these companies to set up man camps full of hundreds of people that can get away with literally murder and assault. I mean, it's, it's devastating. You know, it's, it's, you know, if anything, it, it brings you down and you don't know exactly how you, what to do at, at different points, except help the, the victims and the, the, the victim families. Well, uh, th- I guess that that's partly why social media is so important and just exposure, uh, more exposure to these issues. Um, I, I know this is something that I'm not super familiar with, so I know it's, it's great for me to hear it. And I'm sure there's a portion of our audience as well that is not uh, very familiar with this, these problems. With the man camps, it, it is, it, it's very, it's shocking to a lot of people. When we talk about when um, we mention it, it's the first time they've ever heard of it, you know, and understanding the depth of the problem that is oil extraction and pipelines didn't get any uh, awareness until Standing Rock happened. And that kind of, you know, Standing Rock was pivotal on so many levels because of not only, you know, the land issues and tribal rights and tribal sovereignty and it opened the door to understand our lack of resources, um, infrastructure, and of course, you know, the crisis that's MMIW. And can you um, just uh, give us a quick background of Standing Rock? Um, we do know that it, it, it involved a pipeline uh, in the Missouri River, but for anybody who doesn't know what happened at Standing Rock? Yeah, so Standing Rock is it, tribal land, it's a reservation, and that there was a, an individual that had um, land and was a, a, culture, a cultural uh, bearer and could share about the stories of their ancestral homeland. And knowing what could happen to their ancestral homeland with the Dakota Access Pipeline, they put a call out for um, people to come and understand and learn about this. And the people that answered were the youth from that tribe. So the youth from that tribe came and they wanted to learn all they could and they did and organized and they organized um, a run to Washington, D.C. They did this run, gained attention, spoke in D.C. about what this is going to do to their tribal land. And once they got back to Standing Rock, they kept organizing with this family. And pretty soon, you know, that call out grew once the um, companies came in with the bulldozers and everything to tear up the land. Um, that call went out and not only tribes from all over the country, but people from all over the world, you know, started this camp, started um, the Osheti Shikoan camp, and they occupied the land and literally fought off the pipeline as long as they could. And they were met with military force, dogs, I mean, chemical warfare, people still have breathing issues, people lost uh, somebody lost lost vision in an eye. People were shot. People were injured. Somebody lost an arm. I mean, these things were horrible. Um, and it took all of that to get that attention to our, our rights and our sovereignty and how these things are being violated. And like I said, you know, violence that goes against our land goes against our people. Um, we deal with the same type of violence. And, you know, understanding Standing Rock and what that did did for all of our rights is it's extremely important part of our history to understand. The um, pipeline was actually completed in, I think 2017 though, correct? Mm-hmm. And is this the same pipeline that then sprung a leak? Uh, they all leak. <laughs> I 
it's yeah. not it's not a matter of yeah it's not a matter of of if it's a matter of when and they they all do and you know with the dakota access um it was actually the people of i, I believe it was pierre south dakota voted to not have it go through their through their city because it was so dangerous because they knew it was going to leak and so they rerouted it and made it go through tribal land and let it go through ancestral land and you know it's it doesn't matter like i mentioned earlier it doesn't matter if it's going through the city going through tribal land you're going to drink the same water and feel the same effects of when that oil leaks into the ground but you know that's where that's where we're at is dealing with the, the the leaks now dealing with what the the fallout is of these pipelines it's it's really ridiculous. I'm looking at an article from ABC News and uh, the Keystone Pipeline in North Dakota. They were talking. They re- wrote about the the leak there is 383,000 gallons of oil, so which could fill more than half an Olympic sized swimming pool. That's just going into the land. And you are completely accurate when you say this isn't just tribal land. This it's the land. It it's going to continue to go past the uh, made up boundaries that that are drawn in in the sand there you know it's going to go into any land that is porous so uh it's not just not good for uh the tribal communities it's not good for everybody yeah and and dakota access pipeline actually um would cut through like the largest aquifer in in uh, in, in the united states the oglala aquifer which provides i mean i can't even think of the the number of homes with drinking water but you know, I don't, I don't know why those those facts are ignored or how they can be ignored, but that's the reality of what we're what we're dealing with. Oh man, well, I didn't think we were going to talk about oil pipelines, but I'm glad we did. And you're more than uh, more than welcome to come back at any time. And uh, you you mentioned the um, the Oglala. Oglala. I'm I'm so sorry, I'm pronouncing that wrong. The Oglala Aquifer. Yeah, and that's that's your tribe, right? Yeah, I'm um, I'm Oglala Lakota, Muscogee Creek, and Cherokee. 